Hey everyone, this is Dungeon Master Chris. And this is Dungeon Master Mitch. If you like our podcast and you want to help support us so that we can pay for the permit we need for the Riders of Shemesh to have a float in South Far's annual Pale Sun Parade, then head on over to patreon.com slash dungeonmasterblock and check out the awesome rewards that we have in store for you there. I'm Dale the Dragon, and I approve this message. <laughs> Greetings, Blockheads. This is Dungeon Master Mitch coming to you with a special bonus episode. Today, we are still on our break. It's still September, but I have good news. We have some great episodes that we've been recording. We have some fantastic stuff that's been happening with the DMB, and we are really excited for when October comes back to come back with some awesome episodes and for you guys just to see where we're going with the podcast. But today we have a special bonus episode with DM Neil. He's doing a special extra long DMnastics and he's joined by none other than Richard Howard. So while we are still on break and you guys maybe have been thirsting for some Dungeon Master's Block DM Neil and Rich Howard are here to quench that thirst. So enjoy the episode. It's going to be fantastic. Take it away, guys. Welcome back to DMnastics, the gym for dungeon masters to work out their mind. I'm DM Neil, aka Joke Maniac, and there's no DM main prize this segment. Instead, we're going to be focused on episode number 30, the player's block, and for that, the guest was Rich Howard. And we have Rich Howard here. Hey, I can never replace Phil. No, like we discussed earlier, there's no beard on his face. There's significant no, he can lack only of do beard. So much. Yeah, yeah. Both of you guys, pretty impressive, I have to say. So for this gymnastics, we focused on getting a like an assessment of what type of players most DMs are. I mean, obviously, our sample size was only the DMs here on the forums. But in the uh, the episode breakdown, there was a poll to test and see what type of player the DMs are. And no surprise. With the, no shocking, shocking result. Yeah. Uh, overwhelming support towards the idea of them being a storyteller and actor, which is what they do as DMs. So no revolution there, uh, or revelation rather, that that's exactly what they chose. Could be a revolution. The uh, optimizers and war gamers, they might rally. So that's kind of what we want to talk about. And unfortunate, not unfortunately, but I chose the optimizer and problem solver. Yeah, no, unfortunately is the right word. Okay, fine. I accept it. <laughs> I know... <laughs> I try not to flaunt it, but I choose the optimizer and problem solver on a personal level just because I feel like as the optimizer, I'm trying to anti-break the game or rather figure out the ways that my players could break the game given the right choices. Mm -hmm. So I do it from that perspective. And of course, if I am overwhelming, I try not to do that. I'll hang back and just let people figure it out. The other thing is the problem solver. I chose that because I usually try and work through the ideas that are presented from the DM. I don't 
choose to be a storyteller or actor because, as previously mentioned, that's what we all do as DMs, session after session. And I just, I'm so exhilarated listening to the other person tell their story that I just want that experience without really feeding or guiding it at all. Because recently, the DMs that I've had are younger or first time DMs. So I don't want my decisions to guide them in any way. I just want to experience what they want to do and who they are as DM. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that the guys put up this poll. And as we talked about in the episode a little bit, like I I think most people are going to fall into at least half of these categories. It just depends on the mood that you're in and what you want to be doing for the day or what character you're playing or what genre or what game. If you're playing Edge of the Empire, though you can focus on being an optimizer, there isn't really... it's not heavy mechanics on optimization and it tends to be focused more on the narrative story play anyway. Same thing with kind of like World of Darkness. The tabletop game mechanics were pretty terrible. The world was amazing, but most of us who played that kind of ignored those kinds of things. So they see the actual mechanics of the game may feed into what you're feeling like for the moment. See, I love being a problem solver too, though I feel like I'm a pretty good problem solver in life. For some reason, I have a really hard time solving problems in a D&D game. I don't, know what, I don't know what that is. Yeah, the second the second a riddle comes my way, I just freak out, lock up, and be like, nope, nope, I just roll an intelligence check. It's fine, right? I know. I know the answer. Good. <laughs> so when you say you're a problem solver, what does that mean to you then if it's not like puzzle solving? So essentially, you know, what is laid out in front of me, like the perfect example of the last time that I let someone else DM because I need a break from time to time or else I just get angry. That's just the way it is. I mean, it's because you know, you're weak. You're yeah. weak. I didn't yeah. take a I didn't take a break for like two years, so I think no, I did I all right. Oh, I get it. I totally get that. So I had him do it, and essentially all the players were invited to a party. Drink the stuff from the party. Everyone passes out except me. For some reason, I made every Constitution check, and then I just got knocked out because like ten guys showed up, and I did, I knew better <laughs> to fight than to fight them. So anyway, even that idea, like some players that are the instigator or the fighter, what would their approach be to the fact that? Everyone that you know is going to be, air quote, on your team went down. And now you're presented with a scenario of here's 10 guys surrounding you. What are you going to do? I just gave up. I just put my hands on my head and then they knocked me out and I was with everybody else and it went from there. So the kind of that thing, just really analyzing what they're going for and trying to, I guess, not just solve the problem, but work with the problem to have the narrative keep going. Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting to me because, see, I would consider that a storyteller, where the storyteller is actually, by storyteller or actor, I don't mean like you're going to talk in funny voices necessarily, but you're actually in the head of the character kind of looking at the bigger picture or thinking about what that character would do. I mean, you have six people in your party, five of them are knocked unconscious, 10 people walk in with, you know, clubs. Normal human beings would be like, all right, I'm good. You know, I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to sit down here with my hands on my head. What a, you know, standard D&D, you know, murder wanderer or whatever you want to call him. Murder hobo. Official yeah, official term yeah, is murder official hobo. Official term. I know. I just, I'm not a big fan of that term. But I don't know. It makes sense though. But what, what we typically do is we just react. We're like, oh, look, experience points just walked in the room. Right? So, Roll for initiative. Right, exactly. So to me, I, I can kind of see where you're talking about with the problem solver, but I would actually think about that as, as as much a storyteller actor aspect as anything else, really. But like, I don't consider myself that optimizer min-maxer, but I love making a really good balanced character. I am happy to make a strong character and one that works really well with the rules. My focus is more on finding the best way to make the character that I want to make 
like so i ran this edge of the empire game at gen con and though i made these pre-gen characters for people to play the main character is would be my character if i was going to be playing in the game it was a now tolan which is an aquatic race shockingly enough bounty hunter survivalist and going in and finding the right things that balance each other that really get you know the character that i want to see is a type of optimization like i want the mechanics to back the role playing that i want and I've made in champions, there's so much number crunching in that game, like to make exactly what you want is kind of an acquired skill in that kind of game. So I see myself as an optimizer. I spoke probably pretty assertively against the min-max <laughs> style of play, but it's not necessarily that I have a problem with the idea that you're using the mechanics to the best of your ability. It's that when that becomes the only thing that matters to you and showing other people at the table like, look how cool I am, look how better I made my character than you, and ignoring the balance that there are other people at the table who may not have that skill or may not want to use that skill and want to do some other things. Of course, the same thing can be said, I think, as we mentioned in the episode, from the other direction, like the storyteller who insists on talking to every, you know, every background character, you know, all the time can be just as annoying in this in a different way. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think, and looking back on the character that I had made, I made a brawler from Pathfinder, which is essentially very similar to a monk with it's a monk fighter hybrid. And it's more like the monk without the tenets of faith and doing things of that nature. Yeah, so I love that. Yeah. And so I just went ham on doing as much damage as possible from a build perspective with my hand. Yeah. yeah. But admittedly, though, that's about all I could do. But that's yeah, what I yeah. wanted. I wanted to figure out how could mm -hmm. this character just be as unassuming as possible. If, as far as you know, I'm just a dwarf walking down the street. And then you try and fight me and I ruin you. Right, but yeah. I think it's a really good perspective that I probably do approach things from the storyteller perspective. But I think my goal as a player is always to be supporting, mm. never to be up front because that's I yep. don't, I don't want, I, as the DM, I guess I spend so much, you know, I spend so much time as the front person. I right. don't want that. I will just, I will happily just roll some dice and support you That's and punch stuff with my hands. It's fine. Yeah. And playing that, that secondary role, I think I'd mentioned in the podcast, I'm assuming that that was the podcast. I was talking about playing that secondhand character to somebody else, playing the Chewbacca, you know, to the Han Solo and kind of seeing how to take that ride. It's a pretty fun ride. So but also you're a DM. And I think that when you're a DM or GM or ST or whatever acronym you're using for your game, you know what the other DM has to do. I think we were talking offline and you were saying that, you know, one of the more recent DMs for you is a relatively new DM, whether chronologically young or just experientially young. A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Yeah. But you know what it, you know how hard it is to get just to be focusing on all the things that a DM has to focus on. And if you have, you know, one or more players that comes to the table is with an attitude of the DM's job is to entertain me and to figure out how to get me into this adventure. If that's your attitude sitting down at the table, it's just, I'll just say it, it is the worst attitude you can have. It's a terrible attitude to be sitting down and playing a cooperative storytelling game in that other people, it's other people's responsibility to entertain you and including the DM, right? So I just think it's rough. And since when you are a DM and you go into a game as a player, I think you have just a different perspective on kind of how to help. Like Mitch is an inst I am not an instigator. 
And the instigator for me is trying to push buttons and I don't know, you're the, the classic terrible instigator is the, you know, the kinder, kinder thief, kinder rogue that, you know, yeah, I'm a kleptomaniac. So that gives me an excuse to just to light a fuse and do crazy stuff when other people are trying to move a storyline forward. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be railroaded, but you can use those powers for good, like Mitch talked about. Mitch seems to, when something is slow or something is less combat and storytelling moment, like when they're drinking in the bar and they went out and got drunk and, you know, he's casting spells on the sheep, that ended up being a really fun game because it sounded like there was a bit of a downtime moment right? But he's not trying to pick the pocket of the captain of the guard to get the city keys when the DM is trying to give off some narrative about what it is, you know, the big giant horde that's coming toward the city just to mess with things for no reason. Yeah, it's the difference between being an instigator when there's downtime and there being an instigator in the middle of the boss battle and be like, well, no, you don't have your weapon because I took it. You didn't know, but I did. Right. So a great example for me, I'm going to be putting a, an article up on Tribality about it as well, is Trist Valentine. Trist Valentine's a character from the One-Shot Campaign, which is a Star Wars Edge of the Empire game. And if you're not listening to it, you're doing yourself a disservice, and we would be doing a disservice if we both didn't tell you to go listen to it. So the thing about Trist is I pretty much figured from the very beginning of this podcast, as funny as One-Shot Campaign is and as cool as that podcast is from the very beginning, I was like, man, I'm going to hate Trist. I'm just going to hate him because he's clearly he's just an instigator and he's just out to do his own thing. And I just, you know, I but I don't I, I not only he not only doesn't bother me, I love that character. And so I had to do some introspection as to why, because he's a classic self focused instigator character. And the reason why he works for me is because he's a self-focused instigator character. He's not a self-focused instigator player. And that's where the difference is. JPC plays him well as the character that he created and the idea that he allows Tris to evolve. So I don't remember what episode it was. It was fairly early, but like episode three or four, Bacta and Trist were up all night because of some stuff that happened and they were just awake all night and they weren't going to go to sleep. And so they took the moment to have what almost no gamer group ever allows to have happen, which is we're actually up at night on watch for two hours together, but we don't actually say anything to each other that like normal human beings would get to know each other a little better and make some kind of connection. That episode is where my prejudice against Trist was made clear to me because I was dead set on not liking that character. And Trist went into a little of his background and talked about a little bit about himself and assured back to that he does care about what's happening around him and that there are really good reasons why he acts the way that he acts. And it wasn't presented as an excuse. It was presented as, oh, he's actually, even if he hadn't put thought into this character before, he's doing it right now improvisationally. And now the character makes so much more sense. He allows Tris to have flaws. He doesn't do things perfectly. He's not a min-maxed character. Though I'm not sure I can exactly say that he doesn't do things just to mess with the storyline and with Kat to see what she would do. I suspect he does do that, but he doesn't do it maliciously. It isn't the player's focus to mess with the storyline. And there's another uh, actual play podcast I listened to where the character was an instigator, but I, I'm, I'm like, well, it's just like Trist, but I don't actually like this character. 
And the reason is because I heard an interview and the player himself was saying, I don't know what it is about this particular character, but I just decided that I need to mess with any storyline that comes up. And I guess I could sense that in the way that he was playing the character, that the places where he was instigating didn't feel appropriate or interesting or moving the storyline forward for the most part. Some of them were really funny and good, but some weren't. And that bugs me because it's not about the character and it's not about the group and it's not about the storyline and it's the external player imposing his need to just mess with things for no really good reason yeah and that was the key difference that i was going to mention is that it's going to be if the player is an instigator that's one thing entirely because then on some level it doesn't necessarily matter who the character is or what the character is doing whereas with the campaign and trist is an example trist as a character happens to be an instigator Mm -hmm. I mean, he also still, like you said, he also still has the good of the party. And there are times where obviously it's just to instigate, but at the same time, he instigates in a way that always comes across as true to the character that he has presented to us. Right. I think that's the key difference. In in a way, it again, almost like the example of me saying I'm an optimizer or saying I'm a problem solver, but it comes across almost in this storytelling way. Right. I would say that Trist is an instigator, but comes across as a storyteller when he instigates. And I think that, right. of course, that's a key difference than the player you said who's just like, uh-uh, I don't care what comes up. I'm going to make it go away in the worst possible way I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And JPC, the guy who plays Trist, is clearly a skilled improvisational actor. He's paying attention to what's happening around him and around the character and reacting to that and doing it for a funny line or doing it to make an interesting point or moment. So it always just makes sense, you know, with, within the context of the character. Yeah. So, but, I, but I will never be an instigator because I don't even do that. I mean, I, I always try to have timing for good lines and things, but it's I don't know. I'm always playing a supporting character, I guess. I'm, I'm often playing the kind of, you know, leader archetype, which can go against me sometimes. The cleric I talked about in that game where I was playing a lawful good cleric in a party of chaotic neutral self-mutilating warlocks and necromancers was an interesting moment to try and think about what it is that I'm going to do with this character. You know, you can easily go with the you know, the lawful good paladin-esque thing, you know, and tell everybody how terrible they're being, which I don't think any player of a paladin has ever done. I think paladins always had this like catch-22 about them, this idea that I just think there's no other character class where other people tell you you're playing it wrong. Like you could play an urban ranger and nobody's going to tell you you're playing it wrong. But you play a paladin who puts on a black cloak and hood and sneaks into the high-end part of the city and somebody's trying to take away all your abilities. You know, like I, you made a stealth check. That's not paladin. I, it's you're like, how did how did this stealth check go against the like tenets of my faith? Like, right. I don't. I didn't read the bylaw or the subscript that said no stealth checks for you or you're an anti-paladin. It's like, right. Well, this seems like the best way to do it, so I don't die. I think the perfect example of that is like uh, the Captain America and the Winter Soldier. I mean, it's pretty clearly you can make a parallel between Cap and a paladin, or at least a lawful good character. But he bring sneaks on that ship and takes people out. He doesn't actively murder anyone. He's in battle and that kind of thing. That's the kind of paladin that I always wanted to play that I almost never got to play because if I had done the same thing, somebody would have, it would have at least been a really absurdly long conversation at the table about alignment and a bunch of garbage. Using your 
Marvel analogy, I feel like most people assume that as a paladin, you're going to be Hulk, not Captain America. And it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's... just like, you're going to be loud. You're going to go through, you know exactly what you're going to do and you're going to do it. Yeah. There's nothing that should stop you. And if you stray away from that, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. I mean, I did play with one of my favorite paladins at the table was my friend, Matt, who I talked about, I think in that same episode as well, who had played a character later on. His name was Schmedley. He was clearly like playing up the crazy Canadian Mountie stereotype of a paladin. But but the original idea was at that point, we were literally play testing third edition. It was 1999 or something. And I said, hey, let's just, you know, see what these things are at the table. Because at the time I I like a lot of old school D&D players were like, this isn't D&D. You know, there was the original edition wars between second and third that most people forget about these days because nobody's as old as I am. Well, if, if it helps, I am by no means as old as you are, but I did start in second edition. So I do oh, know what you're talking about. Very nice. But he did that on purpose just because we were doing a one shot or whatever. Well, it ended up turning into a two year campaign. So <laughs> two years of being the guy named Schmedley. Oh, Schmedley. Oh, my God. I have so many stories about Schmedley. But I mean, things would happen like he would roll a stealth. We were walking through the, they were walking through the forest and there was a giant that came by and he, everybody rolled a stealth check and he rolled a one. So he role played that as, oh, well, Schmedley walks out from behind the tree and hails the giant. Hello, giant gentleman. How can I help you? Can we be of service to you or whatever? And everybody else is driving, you know, going crazy. But it was the player finding a, finding a character specific description for a die roll that he had no control over. Right. But no, I wasn't going to take Paladin powers away because he's making a stuff. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So with this cleric at the table, I had to make some choices about what to do. And I could have been an instigator and just messed with everybody and did all that. But it's it's just not fun. It was more interesting to get in the character's head and, and say, like, look, there's things that need to get done. And as much as I don't agree with how these people do their job, they are chaotic, neutral people who I think this situation requires right now. So I need to learn from them. Right. And I need to be the one that's more flexible, not them. So I don't know what that I don't know what that really falls into. Kind of actor, sort of kind of storyteller, kind of problem solver. Right. Especially especially in a group where you are the definitely the one that sticks out like a sore thumb. Right. Right. So you kind of mentioned it. So I will pose to you the questions that were actually in the gymnastics and we could do that real quick to close us out on this segment you may not have a quick answer so do you feel that there's any one play style that sticks out as your prominent play style story is king for me so i'm gonna want to yeah i think the storyteller part of it i want to tap into the emotions of the situation that's happening whether it's my own internal dialogue if i'm a player or if i'm a dm I don't want to just lay breadcrumbs for my players and have them follow the breadcrumbs through an adventure. I want to compel their characters to feel a need to do the thing, whatever it happens to be. I want to tap into them in some way. I want to give them situations in which, I mean, as a DM, actually, I, I DM, you're an instigator for everyone because that's your job. You're there to poke the bear and see what happens in a way, right? As a, as a prose writer, prose writers do the same thing, right? You create this very sweet character and then do terrible things to them in the novel you're writing, right? So this is kind of what you do. So I guess as a DM, we're all instigators in a way, but as a player at the table, I don't, I know that the DM already has a lot of work to do. So I don't want to add to their workload to just try and, you know, compensate for me, you know, blowing off steam from work or whatever. So that kind of covers why 
why you would choose that playstyle. Do you know when that playstyle came became the prominent one for you? Opposed to you know, maybe it's after you flipped and went to the DM side of the screen, or that's just the way you've always approached the game. No, I don't think I always approach the game that way. I was at Gen Con. I was interviewed by uh, Jim McClure, the L five R guru, and we were talking about kind of the same theme. And you know, when I was younger, I learned how to play because my brother brought me to uh, his D and D game, and uh, I was eight; he was sixteen, and so that's how I got exposed to it. But then he left for the Air Force right after that. So when I got the you know red box basic set when I was 10, he wouldn't actually be back from the Air Force for another three or four years. So there were a couple of years there where we um, just had to do it ourselves. And, and back in the day, there were no actual play podcasts. There's no YouTube channel showing you different ways of how to run a game or whatever. We were just, I, I don't need, oh God, I, I wish I had some videos of it because I'm sure we weren't even playing the game at all. We were playing some imaginary construct we put in our own heads. But we started off a lot, particularly when we started playing champions and playing superhero games. The only real like storylines when you're 12 years old is, you know, the banks being robbed. Yep. So like, you're not really thinking about like, what am I doing at home with, you know, you know, and getting a girlfriend or whatever, you know, like you're not really thinking of that. But it wasn't until my brother came back from the Air Force and we invited him to play champions that he kind of blew our minds with what he was doing. Because we were like, hey, what rooftop are you going to be on when the bank gets robbed? We were basically playing it like a, a war game, really a miniatures game. So, we, you know, when we were like, hey, what rooftop are you going to be on when we invited him to play? He was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, no, we're going to be on a rooftop because the bank's going to get robbed. And he said, no, I'm in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts and flip-flops walking down the middle of the street with an ice cream cone walking a poodle. And, uh, you know, we didn't know what was happening or I didn't, I didn't even know what to do with that. Like, that's when he kind of like yanked me out of my, my shell and started to teach me the different layers and levels of what the difference between Monopoly, you know, which is a terrible game, by the way, but the Monopoly and, you know, or a board game and what a role-playing game is. And I think maybe it's because I've always been interested in story and how story can change the way somebody thinks or bring up emotions and make you feel these things. It's, it's just magic. Maybe it's because I was always like that, or maybe it was because it was, he introduced me to such an extreme in that one moment of how different a role-playing game can be that I've always wanted to push that limit and find what I can do beyond just, you know, explore a temple or fly a spaceship there's so much more to it for me than that. Yeah, I can see that moment being like, especially forming in the idea of what this game could even be, because essentially you were playing a set scenario. I mean, like, why is, yeah, if you're going to rob, if it's the bank getting robbed every time, it's not fundamentally different than trying to get Boardwalk and Park Place. But the fact that instead of him just twisting your idea, he completely shattered it with his concept. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's, that's what helps develop a person both as, you know, a player or a DM or anything when someone else at the table is willing to just completely flip the idea that you have and not in any malicious way, of course, but it's just like, no, this is what I'm thinking. Right. My brother's like that though. If he wants to make a point, he goes to 11. And, uh, and when it works, it works really, really well because you really are forced just to even figure out what it is that came out of his mouth. You have to go to a place you've never gone before in your head. And that was one of those times. So, and I think it hasn't really changed. I mean, I played a lot of board games and a lot of war games and stuff. You know, I like a good chess-like game, you know, from time to time. And I obviously I love mechanics, but like anything can be mechanics. Like mechanics are just mechanics. Good mechanics are really elegant and really fun to read and understand and grasp how somebody made something work. 
but they're still just numbers. And something that's a little harder to grasp and a little harder to master is, is this improvisational acting, right? This skill where you can... Yes, and. What, yes, and, right, yeah. And, and the ability as well to, to watch what your emotional reaction is, right? So to intellectually observe yourself while you're having an emotional reaction, to allow yourself to have the full-on emotional reaction, whatever that happens to be, but to have a part of your brain that's actually watching what that emotional reaction is and understanding why that is. And, you know, we throw out this kind of phrase like, oh, well, role-playing games are like improvisational acting, as if that's a very easy thing to do. And it's extremely difficult to do. And anybody like James and Kat and JPC from the One Shot podcasts and, and any improvisational actors you see on stage, or any actors at all, period, it's, it's mental gymnastics. If your character needs to be crying, you can't lose yourself in whatever emotion you're bringing up to get yourself to cry because you have lines to remember and you've got the director's instructions to remember and where points you're gonna have to be and where are the lights. And it's an enormous room full of people and cameras. So you need to be able to feel that and have it feel genuine while you're watching it. And that is not a skill that in modern day that people are trained how to do. So it's very challenging to do. To me, that's more interesting to see what experience my character is having. You know, I don't have dragons in my, you know, day-to-day life. What does it really feel like to see a creature that's the size of an enormous building? You don't need to roll a, roll a fear dragon check on me, you know, yeah, mechanically. Yeah. I'm already scared. To, <laughs> to me, for me to feel it. But it's not the DM's job to make you feel that way. Like, Hopefully the descriptions and things are evoking like, you know, internal images that help move that forward for you. But it's kind of up to us to play our game in our head and and put ourselves in that space. That kind of ties into the last couple of questions that I'll just kind of merge them together. And so it's how can you be a better member of a party and what can you do to be a better player for your DM? I feel like those kind of fit hand in hand. And the thing that I'll throw out there that you kind of hit on, and this is no easy thing, but if you really want to take your game to what I would consider the next level, especially from a storytelling perspective, find an improv class and go to it as a group. Not just, you know, yes, it could be helpful for you as a person, but if you can find an improv class where all your entire group of players and DM can go together, the effect that that would have on your game is ridiculous yeah there was actually a technique that um, or an aspect of improvisational acting i didn't realize until this gen con when i was talking to to james james damato and he was pointing out the fact that one thing that improvisational actors have to learn how to do is to wait to not talk over somebody else and it's one of the reasons i think that it comes across in the one shot episodes and and the campaign episodes is that they're trained to wait for the moment to say the right thing and so it feels cleaner. You know, it feels like when Trist's talking, Bacta isn't just saying random stuff. He's paying attention to what Trist is saying so that he can react to it appropriately. That's not something that happens at the table. And they actually told me it's very difficult to do. One of the reasons why it's easy, easier for them to do it is because they have a very small table they're recording on. And so they're right in each other's face the whole time. And since there's only four of them, that helps them to stay in character. They said when they get a larger table, which is the plan, they're going to have to focus on a little bit more because they're not right in each other's faces. And they had recorded the Edge of the Empire game that I ran at Gen Con they played in, which I was very, very excited about. Um, And they recorded it. 
And so I got to kind of experience the behind the scenes on kind of what the challenges are of recording a podcast uh, actual play that's, uh, you know, that I can pray is a fraction of the quality that they put out on the show regularly. James said, as long as the audio turns out well, which I think is a coin toss because it was, you know, it's Gen Con in the middle of a room full of giant, Yeah, inside a giant gaming room with hundreds of people gaming with you at the right. same time. And you can hear them all. Exactly. If the audio quality comes out good and hopefully you get some time to edit it, then it'll show up in their secret archive for their uh, show. And it'll be an example for lots of the things we're talking about. So both from the player style and, and you know, aquatic gaming, it's an aquatic themed Star Wars game. So what? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I don't I don't believe a word of that. That just doesn't seem like something you'd be interested in. At I all. know. I know. It was very difficult. They, they had demanded it. I said, I hate aquatic stuff. They said they needed it. So Kat's actually a big fan of Nautolans, which is one of my favorite races in Star Wars as well. So that worked out well because she ended up playing that character I was already talking about. And then James was playing a Trandoshan, so he got to do his hilarious lizard man voice. That's awesome. That was really, really funny. So hopefully at least, hopefully it'll get up on the Secret Archive so people can see that. Sweet. Uh, And with that, I'll implore the listeners to join up on the forums. We've had a lot of people joining recently and take part in the challenges that we present and as well as the conversations that we have there to do that just head over to dungeonmasterblock.freeforums.net and try some dnastics so your players don't ask do you even lift i gotta get a pump that's it it's good it hurts i know it does that's it get it well a special thank you goes out to dm neil and to rich howard for bringing us this awesome bonus pod we hope that you guys have enjoyed it And we'll be back October 4th with more Dungeon Master Block episodes. Talk to you guys then. And remember, keep on Dungeon Mastering. Goodbye.